1: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. Today, amid the chaos and confusion when it comes to COVID information, We get a healthy dose of clarity and candor from a top virologist working at the Army's Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases. This is an important podcast today. You're likely frustrated, like most everybody else, about how difficult it's been to get accurate information on all things COVID, not just because it's a novel virus. On top of that challenge, not knowing what was coming, We've been flooded with spin and disinformation, while sometimes true information has been mislabeled by propagandists as disinformation. And sometimes the ones doing the confusion are the ones we used to trust the most. Public health officials we pay to help keep us safe and gather accurate information. Well, there are some bright spots, and hopefully you've watched full measure over the past year and a half or two years and heard some clarity when we've covered the issue. On the front end of all of this, I'm like everybody else. I didn't know whose information to trust. I talked to many, many scientists. I read a ton of studies, and I listened to what public health officials had to say. But now with the benefit of a track record, I can see which ones who I talked to provided accurate information and which ones, as it turns out, did not, whether on purpose or not. But keeping that in mind, one of the best sources I found is the lead virologist at the United States Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, U.S. AMRID. U.S. AMRID is the headquarters for study on all kinds of biodefenses, including those related to COVID. They're doing cutting-edge research, developing therapeutics, vaccines, and all kinds of technology. And this week on Full Measure, Sunday, February 6th, I returned to Fort Detrick, Maryland to ask Dr. John Dye, that virologist, a whole bunch of new questions about the past two years and about the probable future. This podcast has some of the interview that I wasn't able to fit into the cover story for time purposes. Interesting information about pets and other animals carrying COVID, the latest thinking on spread of COVID by children, the folly of wiping down our groceries as we were recommended to do, early on, and maybe most importantly, what lies ahead. Here's Dr. John Dye. Looking back at the things you said very early on, you've really had a great track record. Have there been any surprises though for you as you look at the landscape of what's happened in the past year and a half to two years?
0: So I think scientists tried as best we could to predict what was gonna happen but in some ways it's like trying to predict the unknown. Uh, I think people who looked at the immunology of how a person is gonna respond to a vaccine and then how variants may come out after we had the original uh, coronavirus infection could foresee that we would be dealing with this for a long period of time. So I would say that it maybe has surprised me how the public has reacted to this particular fact. But I think that's probably poor messaging by the scientific community. So hopefully that's what we can discuss today of what the expectations are for vaccines and what we should expect in the future because there is nothing that's 100% perfect or 100% effective. So we have to do the best we can. And sometimes a 95% solution is better than a 0% solution.
1: You said very early on before the vaccines were out that you anticipated they would not work for all that long or they would not last for all that long and boosters would be needed. And yet it seemed like everybody was surprised when it was reported that after a certain period of months, immunity was waning for people.
0: So every vaccine that is currently on the market that's FDA approved, there's a booster that is most likely required in order to maintain maximal efficiency, whether it's the measles, mumps, rubella, whether it's yellow fever, and there's no reason to think why this coronavirus vaccine would be any different. The coronavirus vaccine, the messenger RNA vaccines, they are novel technologies and this is something we're learning as we go. So I think scientists weren't sure, but when I looked at the immune responses that were being generated by the vaccines, they were very impressive short, short term, but that long lasting immunity was not generated with just one shot. So needing multiple shots, was, in my opinion, what would be needed to actually achieve some sort of long-lasting effect. So it'll be interesting, as we deal with the Omicron variant and other variants that may be coming after Omicron, how we look at the immune response, and because the boost is actually being provided by the infection that we're getting. If a person is vaccinated once, twice, three times a lady, and then boosted with the actual Omicron variant or another variant, What does their immune response look like long-term? Does that actually help them maintain long-lasting immunity? Or is that something that is not as advantageous as I would think it would be?
1: The messaging you have said was probably not spot-on in many instances from the public health community. What are some of the areas that you think there could have been better messaging?
0: I think understanding vaccinology or how vaccines work would would be very helpful. And maybe we can talk about that a little bit. There's something called sterile immunity, which means if I get an infection, I show no signs, the virus or bacteria doesn't propagate in me at all, and it's just eliminated immediately. That does not happen very often in any individual. So expecting a vaccine to lead to no illness or no uh, no negative effects at all was very unrealistic. And I think it could have been messaged better that we expect. However, it's very clear that the vaccine is very advantageous at keeping people out of the hospitals. And it certainly is helpful as far as the symptoms that go along with it, decreasing those symptoms and allowing us to survive this infectious disease.
1: So early on, some people said it would, the vaccines would prevent infection, which it didn't. Said it would prevent spread, which it doesn't necessarily. Said that nobody vaccinated would be very sick or ever end up in the hospital, or die. And as each one of those things, people looked around and saw that wasn't the case among people that they knew. think it chipped away at the things that were said that they felt they could believe in.
0: It's hard. It's hard because you can ask a group of scientists and you're gonna get different responses from each of them. There are no absolute truths. <laughs> My father used to say death and taxes are the only absolute truths, and it's true. Uh, We do the best we can to give that information, but you need to give all the information that you have. And then people need to understand that there are gonna be differing opinions on where we came from or where we're gonna go in the future. So it's very difficult sometimes to be a scientist. We're trying to take the data and the information we have at that time, make our best prediction of what's gonna happen, and sometimes we're gonna be wrong.
1: Something else you were right about, you said very early on, there will be variants. There will be different forms of this that will come out. When the first hint at variants that we started paying attention to were reported, again, a lot of people, including medical people, sometimes acted very surprised by that.
0: I think if you look at the history of viruses and how they infect people, you had to expect that there would be variants that would come out. Um, The protein on the outside of this virus is malleable. It's flexible, it can change. The immune system is going to put a pressure on that virus when it goes into a human or any animal. And if it's vaccinated or a a treatment, that's going to put a pressure on it as well. The virus is going to try to outrun that. It's a seesaw. Your body is fighting and the virus is mutating. And it's a matter, so it's going to occur and there's nothing we can do about it. We just have to try to stay on top of it as best we can by looking at what's coming in the future and what we see in in the community right now.
1: How would you explain in simple terms where we are now, coming through this rampant Omicron variant that so many people got, that was said was not as serious as the Delta variant. How did that develop, if you have any ideas, and what does that mean we are in this whole process?
0: So when I look at it personally, I feel like we have to acknowledge that maybe we're entering a different phase of this pandemic. A phase where we have at least three approved vaccines, uh, two messenger RNA and and another. Uh, And then we have at least one uh, pill from Pfizer. We have multiple monoclonal antibody treatments. So there are treatments and vaccines that are out there right now. Now it's a matter of getting it into arms and getting it into people. And then I think as we move forward, we're going to be looking at an endemic virus, which means rather than a pandemic. Endemic means it's something we live with on a normal basis. Think of flu, think of cold, think of respiratory syncytial virus, other viruses that are endemic in our society. And now it's a matter of identifying those people that are most susceptible to that virus or that infection and really focusing on protecting them. And I think that's, as we see a shift in the landscape, I'm hoping that's the direction that the whole medical community will move towards after we get through this surge with Omicron, because I believe that when you have when you layer vaccination, boost, boost, infection, and you look at how many people that encompasses now, you really are getting to a point where you're developing herd immunity or the population is developing an immune response to this agent. Now, as that agent changes, our population immune response is gonna to need to change along with it, and that'll occur over time.
1: If you had to estimate approximately what part of our population either has herd immunity good defenses because they've either had coronavirus or they've had vaccination or both where are we
0: it's hard to estimate because omicron there are a lot of people who are infected with omicron that are asymptomatic uh, and then with the home tests that aren't necessarily reported as far as when a person actually has it it's hard to tell but i would guess If you look at vaccination and then infection, we have to be looking at 70 to 80% of our population in the United States has been infected, but there are no hard numbers to back that up. But that would be my estimate.
1: That's a much higher number than CDC has estimated based on either models or blood samples. I'm not sure which. So I think,
0: but that was several months ago when that came out uh, and it is based on blood samples. But I think if I don't know of a single person who can't say they don't know someone who has been infected by coronavirus at this time, and especially the Omicron variant or the Thanksgiving, Christmas and New Year's holidays. There certainly was a lot of infection that occurred across the United States. Um, So I think we're in a position where that's probably safe to say, but data will tell us as we move down this path.
1: Vaccines aside, they weren't available in those early months. What have we learned about the power of natural immunity to provide a defense against repeat COVID? In other words, if someone's had an infection and fought it off.
0: So if you've had an infection and fought it off, you're much more likely to be able to control that infection if you see it again, as long as that infection is similar to what you saw before. If there's a drastic shift away as far as the number of mutations that have occurred, you're not gonna be able to control it as well. You will be able to help control that. So I think as we move forward we see what the immune response is in individuals and then we can look to see what it's going to be long term as we move out.
1: So is it not a function so much of how long your natural immunity lasts but more a function of the type of variant it's exposed to in the future?
0: So it's a combination of both. Uh, Individual genetic differences between me and you and any of your 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 listeners or viewers are going to change how you respond to a infectious disease. Everybody responds differently. Someone can develop long-lived, long-lasting immunity, and they are rock-solid against everything, and they're able to handle it. Others might not be able to do so, and that has to do with age, genetic makeup, and a lot of other variables. And then you throw on top the Omicron variant versus the Delta variant versus the variants that will be numerically or alphanumerically named later on, that then throws another layer of complexity on top of it.
1: Based on what we know today, is it a rational approach to think that if someone wants to get vaccinated, maybe every year if something comes up like that for COVID, but other people who are healthy want to rely on natural immunity, either they've had it or they're okay with dealing with COVID. Are both of those rational approaches based on what we know today?
0: I think if you look at influenza, people have used that approach for years. The influenza vaccine is offered every year. A certain percentage of Americans and globally choose to take the influenza vaccine and a certain percentage choose not to. I can see that as a model moving forward as far as the coronavirus vaccine. I think there will be a coronavirus vaccine that will be made seasonally by companies and it'll be made available to the public. And I think it'll be up to the public to choose whether they want to have that vaccine or not.
1: Or it could be mandated by a particular school system or state. That
0: that is possible as well. And there's lots of vaccines that are mandated by state or local school systems. In order for you to attend that school, you have to have that vaccine. And at the state level, that's where it's decided. So that's where I'm guessing that would occur.
1: Can somebody get Delta and Omicron COVID at the same time?
0: So I'm not aware of any data actually showing that but there's no reason why they couldn't. You could get co-infected with multiple variants of coronavirus, you could get co-infected with flu and coronavirus, or respiratory syncytial virus and coronavirus, and understanding how those viruses interact in the system is complex, and we've actually done studies here at USAMRID where we have uh, challenged animals with flu, and then we come back and challenge with coronavirus, and the animals that were challenged with flu and then coronavirus fared better than those that were just challenged with coronavirus. So there is some immunity that is built up, probably innate immunity, that allows those animals to better control. So as we look at our landscape as humans, we look at, well, if you see the flu, then you see coronavirus, how's that gonna play out? It's gonna be very interesting because there's lots of other infectious diseases out there, colds and otherwise, that we see and how our immune system responds to that.
1: What you're suggesting is if somebody gets the flu and gets coronavirus after that, it may not be this recipe for disaster that would seem to be implied.
0: I don't scientific, I don't think scientifically we know the answer to that question yet. There is certainly immune responses that are more general that a previous infection can better prepare you for future infection. So that could be positive. However, it depends on the person and depends on the order and how it goes. And if you're already in the midst of a flu infection and you are really not feeling well, to add a coronavirus infection on top of that may not be the best idea. However, if you've cleared the flu and you still have that immunity, it could actually help.
1: Can you explain in like a way we could understand how Delta probably came about? You know, what the virus wants to do and what it typically does?
0: So the virus, if you think of the virus as a person, And if you just think about it that way, the virus's point is to survive. The virus's point is not to kill its host, because if it kills its host, then it's not a very good virus and it's not going to propagate and spread. So the majority of the mutations that we're seeing, it's not necessarily for a more lethal virus because that's not necessarily preferred. It's for a more transmissible virus so that it can spread easier from person to person. a recipe for how you can develop variants. Let's just not let's not make it about delta. Let's make it about any. Um, if you have if you have a person who's immunocompromised, and that immunocompromised person gets a coronavirus, a normal person may clear that coronavirus in five to ten days. A person who's immunocompromised, that virus is going to be with them a lot longer, and they're going to get treatments. They're going to get monoclonal antibodies. They're going to get other treatments that try to tamp down that virus so that the immune system can control it. But it also gives the virus more time to mutate and change over time. So basically, in an individual who's immunocompromised that's received these treatments, you're putting a selective pressure on that virus to change and move away, get away from that treatment, and you're giving it lots of time to have those mutations occur. So
1: it's, it could be mutating in that person's body Correct. at the moment. Oh,
0: it certainly is mutating in that person's and you're creating many many different versions of the virus as you go and those that are more transmissible or uh, have an advantage to that virus will then be transmitted to future people so in a situation like that you have unfortunately a perfect storm where you can actually get variants that come out that is one scenario for how a variant could emerge and it's not it's natural it's going to occur and that's that's why when we talked the last time I fully expected that we would see different versions or different flavors of this particular virus over time, uh, and it's going to continue to happen. What we hope is that our natural immunity, the vaccination immunity, our pre- our exposure to the virus over time will prepare our immune system so that we're able to control it much like so we can control other infections that were that are endemic in our population.
1: And then along came Omicron. A couple of comments on that. This was um, something that spread like wildfire.
0: So the spread
1: even among people who've been vaccinated and even among people who'd already had COVID.
0: So Omicron was divergent or different enough from the Delta and other variants. And I'm sure that you'll probably talk more about that with some other people here at USAMRID, that it was divergent enough that the vaccination didn't provide enough protection compared to what it did against Delta.
1: Why isn't it called a new strain then?
0: So there are strict virology rules for what is a new strain. It has to be a certain amount of divergence away. It is not that far away, but the mutations that it has were very selective to allow more transmissibility and also to escape the vaccination. So the vaccine provides a particular immune response. It's going to, the virus is going to try to escape that and generate these variants. So it was, it had a lot of different mutations that occurred uh, and they were in particular places that were very advantageous to that virus to propagate and spread among people.
1: So I guess there are, you said, at least two possible outcomes of where it goes, either because so many people were infected with Omicron, maybe more of the population is safer now or maybe not.
0: So I think the scientific community is split at this point in time on where we're gonna go from here I think there is a certain group of scientists that believe uh, that we're going to have we're going to be having this problem for decades and decades and decades, and it's going to be just as bad as it is right now. I'm a little more optimistic than that. I believe that we will continue to see variants that come out over time. I think that Omicron will die down, and then six months to a year from now, something else will pop up as our immunity wanes over time, and as booster vaccines become available, people can choose to get those and move those forward. But my guess is that it'll become endemic, and I hope we get to a point where we are really focusing on those that are most susceptible to the virus and most likely to have problems going into hospitals and death, and that would be your immunocompromised and elderly, and we get into that point where we're more into like a flu.
1: When people talk about therapeutics, do they just mean basically treatments? Yes. And where are we with that?
0: That's a great question. So the last time we talked, uh, there were no approved therapeutics at all. And as I mentioned earlier, we have now a pill from Pfizer, we have multiple monoclonal antibody cocktails, uh, AstraZeneca, Eli Lilly, AbCellera, Adagio, Regeneron, that are all in the clinics and showing to be advantageous. Um, here at U.S.A.M.R.D., we actually helped test and actually helped develop a lot of those monoclonal antibodies. They were all taken through those animal models that we talked about the last time I was here, which is really fantastic. So uh, it's changed the landscape because now a person that is seen as a high risk, has comorbidity comorbid- or mortality issues, they can receive that treatment on top of vaccination or without a vaccination, and that gives them an advantage to controlling the viral infection.
1: Did monoclonal antibodies just get revoked, or only some of them?
0: Some of them, and the they're revoked. The ones developed, or different ones? No, so some of those, so it's confusing. Uh, some of the monoclonal antibodies were developed for Delta. And because those changes we talked about in Omicron, some of those monoclonal antibodies don't work against Omicron. So, so they've been revoked for particular variants. They still work against delta, they don't work against omicron. For instance, the GSK product, that's one of the monoclonal, it works against both delta and omicron. So there are some that so work that's against still all. Out there. It's still out there. Exactly.
1: Stick around, there's more after a short break. Americans are rightly alarmed by the increasingly tight grip on the news and information by special interests, corporate interests, and big tech. In my new book, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism, I tell the important inside story of how we got here and the Orwellian world where we will find ourselves if the course isn't altered. Pick up a copy of Slanted today. Do you have something to say and want to make your own podcast? Let me tell you how to do that for free with Anchor. Anchor has creation tools that let you record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. You can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places, and you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's all you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. We're back. We talked before and you said the reason at the time the vaccine was not being forced or required by the military, by the troops, is because the virus is not like smallpox. It's not killing a lot of people. It's hard to force a vaccine on under those scenarios. Now it is required.
0: Correct. So when it was an experimental use vaccine and not approved by the FDA, it's very difficult to enforce the administration of the vaccine in any community, whether it be military or otherwise. Once the vaccine became FDA approved, the military looks at it as a force readiness. Uh, the military can't afford to have six soldiers as well as soldiers who are in the hospital beds or dying. That's obviously not acceptable. We have to have a force readiness. So the vaccination was mandatory or is mandatory for the military uh, to maintain that force readiness
1: pets and animals. Mm-hmm. I personally know a few people who got COVID and their pets were also diagnosed. In one case the cat had to be put down, got very sick. In mm-hmm. Some cases it's dogs. Yes, We've heard cases where zoo animals,
0: tigers, yes, yes. lions
1: are diagnosed. And when I look on the CDC website it just says something like animals are not believed to be a major source of transmission. But to me that seems like a huge area to look at what do we know about that
0: so i don't know that there's been much that's been looked at at that as far as is it transmissible from a pet to a human uh one thing that i would say is i don't know how each of those animal species how coronavirus acts in them and i think we're still trying to understand how coronavirus behaves in humans so trying to also understand how coronavirus behaves in other animals such as pets adds to a layer on top
1: Originally kids were said to be not good carriers. At least I heard that kids aren't good spreaders and they weren't getting sick. Now it seems like more children are getting ill, not very ill, but they are showing symptoms. Are they spreading coronavirus more easily than we thought?
0: So I don't think that I don't believe the messaging was correct, that children cannot be spreaders of the virus. I think that any human that has respiratory tract and has coughing and sneezing is going to be a potential spreader. So to think that a child couldn't spread it is not really logical thought process. Uh, however, I would say that the children, children are less likely to have the devastating effects of coronavirus that we see in adults. And that has to do with their immunological status and how 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 strong they are immunologically.
1: Were we correct in wiping down our groceries? with? That's a An I bacterial Antibacterial things.
0: So I think the data now shows that it really probably was a little over the top for the wiping down of all the groceries and everything. The vi- and I, I said this in our last talk, the virus is actually not that sturdy. It's not that hardy a virus. It doesn't have a very thick coat around the outside of it that's protecting it. UV irradiation, uh, temperature. Uh, humidity, all these things actually are deleterious to this virus when it's on a surface. So I think as we move, as we learned more about that, and there were studies that came out, we determined that you know it's, there's nothing wrong with abundance of caution and doing that, but the likelihood of the virus spreading from someone taking a head of lettuce and then someone else picking up that head of lettuce in the grocery store was very, very minimal, if if possible at all.
1: Do we know anything about how quickly COVID could spread? Again, I think it was said at one point, you'd have to stop and talk to an infected person for 15 minutes, You know, if you were trying to put times on it. Do we know anything about how long you'd have to be exposed to somebody and in contact with them to get it?
0: I think it depends on so many different factors that putting out timelines like that are very difficult. How infectious the person is talking to you is, how much virus are they shedding? We know of cases where a person is asymptomatic, yet they're shedding an incredible amount of virus. So if they're talking to you, they're gonna spread it to you. There's no way to avoid that. So setting timelines like that, I understand why it's needed because you have to set some sort of parameters for people to understand and determine when they need to go get a test or when they don't need to go get a test. But it's very difficult because there are so many unknowns.
1: Is this facility working on research on new, vaccines related to COVID?
0: So yes, we have multiple second generation vaccines that we're working. We're working with industrial partners as well as internally, just usamrid driven uh, vaccines for coronaviruses and other viruses. So yes, I think next generation vaccines are coming down the pipeline. Uh, they look at different variants. I think looking at future vaccines that provide more broad spectrum control of coronaviruses in general not just SARS-CoV-2 is the direction the majority of the industrial partners and our own institute are moving towards.
1: What about, I think they called it a pan-coronavirus vaccine that the Army says it's developing. Is that something similar to what we were working that on? That is
0: exactly, so we, we've worked with that vaccine candidate, uh, but not just the Army. There are multiple other industrial partners that are trying to develop a pan-coronavirus vaccine, and the idea is If you look at SARS-CoV-2 and SARS-CoV-1 and MERS and all the different variants, what are the shared attributes of those particular viruses? And can we make something that looks more like this mosaic of all of these different parts of viruses that would then provide protection against anything coming out in the future?
1: When we try to assess what's happened and what's next, The numbers can be deceiving, as you said. Um, First of all, a lot of people may have COVID that never are reported into the system. And then other people are counted even though they're not really sick with COVID. What's your comment on that?
0: So I think understanding what the true infection rate is is very difficult. However, the trends that you see across either states or counties or the country, I think they do tell you something about how many people are infected. If you see that there's an increase in the number of infections, I think that's genuine. It may not be that that's the exact number of infections, however, it's all relative, because I would argue that the same number of people are not being counted in each particular case. So I think the trends and the lines and the the graphs are representative of what's going on. I don't know if the scale is correct.
1: Not as many people tested for SARS originally. You know, we weren't testing everybody, so there are probably more cases than we measured. But I heard the former head of CDC say something like, in 19 years, only like 10,000 cases of SARS were reported, versus look at what SARS-CoV-2, coronavirus that we call, look at what it's done. Have we reached any more conclusions about what's going on with this and whether it was man-made and where it came from?
0: So... That's gonna be a very difficult question that's gonna probably plague us for years. There is not enough data at this point in time to determine, in my opinion and many people's opinion, whether this was a accidental release from a laboratory, whether it was man-made or whether it came from a bat that someone came and encountered in a cave. At this point in time, it's very difficult to determine what that is. And unfortunately, the further we get away from the proximal event, the more difficult it will
1: be to
0: track that down.
1: And I looked before I came here mm-hmm. to confirm China still hasn't cooperated. We still don't have what we needed two years ago from China if we were gonna try to get at the heart of what they knew about it, was what was going on at the Wuhan lab. Um, I guess my last question is, oh, two more, sorry. Um, I did a story on the Amish. Yeah, did you see it? No, it got very well circulated. I went to check it out because AP had reported they had herd immunity. I'm gonna go back and see what happened with Omicron. They let it roll through. They didn't stay shut down. They drank out of the same cup at church in May of 2020 and think they all got it. They didn't test, they don't go to the hospital. A lot of them got sick, some of them died, but no worse. and, And arguably they say better than the communities around them, but they think because they let it run through, and got over it. They then stayed open and made more money as a community than they've ever made in 2020. So the question is, is that a strategy? Did they do that? Did they do that right, or did they do that better, perhaps?
0: So if you look at the pandemic of 1918, um, there were certain cities like Philadelphia that shut down, and there were certain cities like St. Louis that didn't shut down. And when they looked at the total number of deaths that occurred in both of those cases, they were very, very similar. They just occurred in a big spike in the one city where they didn't shut down, and they occurred slowly over time. In a microcosm, if you talk about a small community, maybe that's not a problem. But if you look at the size of the United States or some of these other countries, it's not so much necessarily about how many people die, it's how many people are inundating the hospitals. And how much bandwidth we have to provide appropriate care. So, while I understand the idea that maybe you end up at the same place and maybe you get there quicker by allowing it to run its course, you also have to look at all the other repercussions that go into that, but you also have to look on the other side of the coin, which is all the economic distress and everything, the psychological distress that goes on with letting it stay over time. So is there a perfect answer to that question? I don't have it, but there's a lot of variables that you have to look at. But I would say looking back, I think trying to flatten the curve, that was a big term that everybody learned for a while. I think that was really important to allow the vaccines to come on board, to allow the treatments to come on board and to allow the hospitals and the staff to be able to respond as best they could to a very, very difficult situation.
1: When does it end?
0: Wow, I wish I'd go to Vegas if I knew that. Um, I don't know if end is the right word. I think when this virus becomes endemic and we are dealing with it on a seasonal basis, it becomes like the flu, it becomes like a cold. We have treatments, we have vaccines. As I said, I think the end game for this will be, we live with it, we learn to live with it, and we protect those who are most susceptible to this virus so that we are giving ourselves the best chance to be able to control and survive.
1: Anything else I didn't ask that you're working on you wanna talk about or say?
0: So, the last time you were here, uh, it was over a year ago, and we were, I would say, at USAMR we're doing about 80% coronavirus work and 20% of our normal work, threat work. And what I would say is that now we've kind of shifted, and I'd say we're back to a 20-80 split the other way, where 20% is coronavirus and 80% is our other work. But I think what's important to know is that not only are we here at USAMRID to support the coronavirus effort, but we're also keeping active in all of our other programs with Ebola and all the other infectious diseases and the bacterias, the anthrax, the pestis, Uh, the Burkholderia, all these other agents that have the potential to cause pandemics in the future. We have to try to stay ahead of this as best we can. There's going to be another coronavirus. It won't be called coronavirus, it'll be called something else. As we continue to infringe on the environments of animals and ecosystems, we're gonna have spillover events that occurred, whether coronavirus was a spillover or not, There will be spillover events that occur like ebola we have to try to be prepared for that and that's why we're here hopefully we can fill the medicine cabinet with lots of potential vaccines and therapeutics so that we're not caught
1: off guard again i hope you enjoyed today's podcast leave a review subscribe and share it with your friends to hear the story i put together with this material be sure and watch Full Measure Sunday, February 6th. If you're listening to this after the fact, you can watch a replay at fullmeasure.news. But to find out where it airs on Sunday, go to CherylAckeson.com and click the Full Measure tab. That has the list of TV stations and all the other ways you can watch, including live or replays online and on our app, Stir S-T-I-R-R. While you're there at CherylAckeson.com, Check out the store tab and learn how to support independent journalism in an increasingly difficult information landscape while getting some cool products that say things like do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.